0: Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanaya Talber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today we're sharing part five of our series 1A USA, Conversations on the First Amendments, Past, Present, and Future from the National Conference of the First Amendment at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. In our first panel, NCC President Jeff Rosen sits down with college presidents David A. Thomas of Morehouse College, Robert Zimmer of the University of Chicago, and Teresa Sullivan, President Emerita of the University of Virginia. Sullivan shares the challenges of serving as president during the Unite the Right protests in Charlottesville, and all three presidents discuss their efforts to foster free speech and intellectual diversity on their campuses. Later you'll hear from a panel of journalists who have reported in foreign countries. They share stories of sometimes life-threatening challenges they and their colleagues face and discuss the disparities of press freedom around the world. The MC you'll hear later on is Joy McNally. But first, here's Jeff.
1: Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Rosen, and so looking forward to this conversation with three of the most distinguished university presidents in the country, three people who've done more to think about the state of free speech on campus and in America than anyone else, and we have so much to learn from their wisdom. I'm going to begin with Bob Zimmer, because Chicago has inspired Uh, many across the country by issuing a set of principles called the Chicago Principles that guide free speech on campus. So Robert Zimmer, uh, what are the Chicago Principles and how do they guide free speech at Chicago?
2: Yeah, so uh, when I put the committee together with uh, Jeff Stone as the chair, uh, the goal was not, how do you think about free expression on college campuses or at the University of Chicago? Uh, Rather, the goal was to say the university has a very long-standing commitment to free expression, open discourse, and intellectual challenge. And the task of this committee was to articulate them uh, because they needed a statement. We needed a clear statement to have a set of principles on which we could act. Uh, Fundamentally, this is a set of statements. A set of statements about free expression that reflect the point of view of the University of Chicago for a long time continuing today uh, about their importance to the most powerful challenging and empowering education uh, we view our mission as very clear which is to deliver that education to have the most unshilled environment for uh, faculty research and that that type of education and that type of research that we want to have demands in an open, challenging environment. And the statements that were made in the Chicago Principles and by the Stone Committee were very much uh, in accord with that history and uh, very much were clear that this is a bedrock principle of, uh, of the university.
1: Do, dear friends, Google the principles because they are uh, significant and they essentially adopt the American First Amendment jurisprudence that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence, with exceptions for defamation, intentional harassment, and the like. Uh, President Thomas, you are at Morehouse, which is one of three all male colleges, uh, one of the uh, historically uh, African American college how are you finding the free speech environment there and how does the fact that it's all male influence that environment?
3: Great, great question. Um, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be, at least on the surface, uh, a lot of tension around free speech or voice. Um, part of that, I think, is that we may actually have the opposite challenge with speech which is surfacing unpopular speech uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the community. Uh, and there's also the question of expression. Uh, part of the First Amendment isn't simply about what, what you say, it's also about how you present yourself. And we are, we are a college uh, with many traditions, uh, with the history of being all male, and uh, questions arise about the expression of that. Uh, uh, and and those traditions. I think, in general, it's a very open environment. We also have another dynamic, which is our sister college is an all-women's school uh, on the other side of the fence, if you will, literally, uh, Spelman College. Uh, and there, the question of um, the voice of of, of the women of Spelman and the men of Morehouse around issues like uh, sexuality, uh, sexual engagement, uh, feminism—that uh, that's often where tension emerges, uh, and our students work at work at that. Um, and I think the faculty have been open to it. Another area for us around expression is. Um, in the spring I dismissed Papa John's uh, who were vendors on our campus and made the decision that the racist comments made by their CEO constituted um, a violation of our principles at the college and there was some question about that as a suppression of speech uh, and whether or not we should have penalized a company for the uh, statements of their CEO. Uh, And some people did see my decision as a suppression of free speech.
1: And what was your response?
3: My response was that um, the CEO of Papa John's was also the founder of Papa John's. uh, And organizations do embody their leaders, and in particular their founders. Um, and that as a historically black college, to maintain doing business with an organization whose leader um, essentially denigrated the population that we are primarily serving uh, was something that I, I couldn't in good conscience uh, continue to do.
1: President Sullivan, you presided at the University of Virginia, founded by Thomas Jefferson, one of the greatest defenders of free expression in our history. And yet, invoking Thomas Jefferson, you provoked controversy and presided with great uh, sensitivity and nuance over free speech controversies, including uh, rallies involving Unite the Right. Tell us about those controversies and how you dealt with them.
4: Sure. Um, I just have to say, since uh, I am an alumna of the University of Chicago, that... When the uh, Chicago principles came out, a lot of Virginia alumni called or wrote me to, to say, Why don't you endorse these principles and stand with the University of Chicago? And I pointed out that our principles were the First Amendment. You know, So Chicago is standing with us. <laughs> 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 you know, unlike my two colleagues here, I represent a public institution. We're an arm of the state. And so um, we operate in a very different way. Uh, from private institutions I can't ban guns for example Uh, people can in Virginia can have both open and closed carry and citizens of the Commonwealth are entitled to walk our grounds Uh, we can keep those guns out of our buildings but that's all we can do that became complicated with unite the right because not only did they show up in a surprise rally which we didn't anticipate was going to happen that Friday night um, but for us that weekend, they were armed to the teeth. In fact, they were better armed than the police were. And so we had an interesting configuration there of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. Um, because besides having, you're having a right to speak, I have a right to refuse to listen to you. But when you've got a gun trained on me, it's a little bit hard for me to exercise that right. So it was, it was a difficult uh, situation for us. Um, as I say, we were, we were not expecting anything to happen on our ground, certainly not on Friday. We were very well prepared for Saturday. Um, one of our mistakes was assuming that this group was actually organized, because there were people who held themselves out as organizers, um, who, by the way, did not tell us the truth about what their intentions were. But it turned out that many people in this group had no intention of following their so-called leaders. They were going to do whatever they wanted to do. So the agreement that the rally on Saturday would be held at noon and that the protesters would go through certain prearranged channels so the police give them protection (coughs) was completely overturned because at 7 a.m. they began converging from all directions on the park where the rally was going to be held. And then so did the counter-protesters and so there were skirmishes everywhere. And by 11.30 the governor declared a state of emergency and I was told to close the university. So I did, but I did make an executive decision, because there was a wedding scheduled for the chapel that afternoon at 3 o'clock. You have to make those reservations more than a year in advance. And I was not going to tell that bride and groom that they could get married. So we stationed police at the chapel, and the wedding went on. But that was the only thing that happened that afternoon at the university. But there's been, there was much discussion about it afterwards. A lot of this discussion was about the police and whether they were prepared or not prepared, or organized or not organized, and so on. But the more fundamental issues of what do you do when um, a group of angry and armed men are marching across your campus chanting things like, Jews will not replace us, um, a sentiment that most of the university found really abhorrent. Um, so we spent the next year. Thinking about our time, place, manner policy, and had vigorous debates among our, among our First Amendment scholars and others at the university to try and come up with a solution so that what happened that Friday couldn't happen again. But speakers, even those with unpopular views, still had places to speak where police could protect them if there were counter protesters, um, and we could make the situation physically safe. One thing I have to say, and presidents face this a lot, is We cannot make it psychologically safe. Uh, For students who encounter ideas that are antithetical to them, that are straightforward attacks on perhaps their faith beliefs, um, the groups they come from, uh, that are threatening them in other ways, that actually is part of education. It doesn't necessarily feel good. I believe it was St. Thomas Aquinas who said, learning always makes a bloody entrance.
1: What was the balance you struck in the wake of the Charlottesville protests? The ACLU decided not to defend protesters who were armed on the grounds that being armed itself threatened imminent violence. Critics said that's not imminence, it's a Second Amendment right. So how did you balance the two? Uh,
4: Well, we we talked with our architecture faculty about whether our, our lawn could be construed as a facility, because under state law, we can ban weapons from a facility. And so the lawn is a totally enclosed space surrounded by students' living areas and some faculty living areas uh, with limited egress. There's only a few ways to get in and out. And so the architecture faculty offered the opinion that that was a facility. And so our board of visitors banned weapons from that facility. So that's one way that we began to handle that. But the other was about the only time, place, manner regulation we had was that you could not use amplified sound outside a classroom because you couldn't disrupt the class. Um, We decided instead that that offered too many acres and acres of uh, land for people to have protests where the police couldn't necessarily protect them. So we identified nine areas uh, on the grounds, popular gathering spaces where people would normally meet, and we declared those to be. Uh, places that could be reserved for um, any kind of free speech activity, Um, leafleting, uh, speeches, debates, whatever, Uh, with a very easy reservation form. And the purpose of the reservation is just so that the police know where people are going to be. Because obviously, one of the things that happened Friday night, that Friday night at our university, was our police could not protect the students who ended up in a violent clash with some of these protesters.
1: Thank you. Bob, yes. Teresa said that uh, Virginia stands with the First Amendment, not the University of Chicago. That's fighting words. So please respond. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, it, 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 there's actually really interesting uh, point here. Several interesting points. So first of all, of course, we're not as a private institution. Uh, first Amendment doesn't apply to us, um, and um, so our our position is not. Uh, we like the First Amendment, our position is we actually like giving a difficult, challenging, uh, and empowering education for which intellectual challenge and open discourse uh, is necessary. But a really interesting thing is, and this is not the case here, but you see some state universities, I would argue, hiding behind the First Amendment, saying I have to do things uh, because of the First Amendment, but when it comes down to trying to set a tone on their campus in which people are not ostracized for having different views, in which intellectual challenge is accepted and in fact encouraged, in which people's assumptions are to be challenged, including their own, uh, that they're not so interested in. And in the same way that uh, the First Amendment does certain things and, and cre- create certain obligations on the part of state universities it doesn 't actually put obligations on them for setting certain tones about the nature of the education they give. so I think that um, just saying we have the first amendment you 'll forgive me is not uh, sufficient, uh, but I think the point you make um, that you made about um, Uh, the importance of not feeling safe when safe means to do with ideas and uh, uh, is really uh, a whole other point uh, that not everybody embraces just because they're subject to the First Amendment.
1: Well, you put on the table a topic that I'd love all of us to dig into, and that is the question of intellectual diversity among the students. I mean, we can debate where you draw the legal line when it comes to unpopular speakers, but I've heard all of you say that really today there's a trouble with students listening to other points of view, and the tribalism and polarization that has infected the rest of our politics is also affecting our campuses in ways that measurably affect public discourse and the quality of education. President Thomas, how much intellectual or ideological diversity is there at Morehouse, and what are you doing to foster it?
3: Um, I would actually argue that um, at Morehouse College, uh, which is a historically black college for men, um, we probably don't have enough ideological diversity being surfaced and um, consideration of different models and different assumptions about uh, how we move in particular the black community forward And globally Uh, so you just take for example I met last Thursday I had a representative of the student Republicans come to my office I do office hours on Thursday and he wanted to propose that we celebrate one of our alums uh, who's a Republican African-American who ran for president and I asked him I said well how many how many Republicans are there in the Republican student group and he said three He said and there's you know there may be a few in the closet and that just made me um, <laughs> wonder you know whether enough of the differences of opinion and models and ideologies that are out there surface um, where I think um, if there is a tension in our community it's 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 probably around uh, sexuality sexual identity and two. Dr. Sullivan's point, I think this question of how you make people psychologically safe uh, is the most challenging one uh, for us as administrators. I was dean at Georgetown and also a professor in the administration when I was at Harvard, and uh, I can remember times when black students came to me in those environments where they were definitely in the minority Uh, and had some proposal about uh, the administration should take a stand to suppress uh, some speech or views, and I never supported that, and part of my speaking to them was to say, whenever we suppress speech, it will always come back to hurt us, once you set that in motion. But the question of psychological safety, is one uh, that I think I struggle with as a, as a leader, even, even at uh, at Warhouse College.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Professor Sullivan, how would you analyze the combination of these factors we're identifying, a desire for psychological safety, a tendency to demonize the other, an increasing polarization and lack of civility? Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, in their new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, attribute all of these factors to the cause of our free speech crisis on campus and say that it's uh, a phenomenon of the past decade. Does that make sense to you, or where do you think all this is coming from?
4: You know, I think it does make some sense. It is helpful to think about the political climate of the country and its polarization. Virginia is a purple state, and we're required by legislature to admit 70 percent of our students from Virginia. So we represent that purpleness inside our student body. Uh, Larry Sabato, our uh, eminent political scientist, told me of a survey he'd done of the entering class that showed they were one third Republican, one third Democrat, and one third Independent. So there's room for a lot of discussion going on there among the students. Uh, I do think that it's true that faculty in the humanities and uh, some of the social sciences at every institution, not just uh, at Virginia, do tend to lean left. Uh, that's less true of scientists, engineers. Uh, business professors and so on. Uh, but, but one way we've, we've sought to deal with this is in terms of the intentional invitation of outside speakers, particularly our Miller Center for Public Affairs, which invited all the announced candidates for president in the last election to come to the university and speak. Um, and we had we had three who came. Um, students lined up hours in advance to be able to come in. There was you know there was no problem with with those in terms of uh, appropriate listening and not heckling and so on. Um, but uh, I do think that sometimes students with very conservative points of view uh, hesitate to express those views in class. They do, however, find other groups of like-minded students. Our college Republicans are quite a lot larger than yours. <laughs> and, uh, Uh, You know, with over 800 student groups to choose from, almost everybody has found a place of some psychological comfort. But I worry about that, too, because the tribalization means that we still aren't speaking to one another. We're just finding our own niche and pulling off and, and, uh, and staying there. I think that's not just true of the college campus. I think that's true of a lot of the country right now.
1: Uh, President Zimmer, you have identified the polarization of political rhetoric as affecting the campus climate, as well as the decline in civility in high schools as an ideal, which is taught, Uh, and noted that this began before 2016. How would you analyze uh, where this phenomenon is coming from? Yeah, well, first,
2: I I mean, I think it's important just uh, from a larger contextual point of view to recognize that this is not a singular phenomenon. I mean, the the question about free expression, free speech, uh, comes under attack in various ways over over history, um, back to um, the founding of the first university, even in Bologna. But, um, and certainly in the United States in the 50s, it was a big issue on university campuses. So it's not as if the the um, a mo- uh, movement toward uh, closing of discourse is a new phenomenon. It just appears periodically. And it appears in part because people really are, generally speaking, quite uncomfortable with the free speech of those that they, um, that they uh, disagree with them about things that they feel very strongly about. Everyone's in favor of their free speech. It's a great idea. And, uh, People I agree with, absolutely. And people who have uh, uh, moral views or political views or religious views uh, that are uh, antithetical to yours, a lot of people are not so sure about their commitment to it. So I would say that what you see periodically is the rising up of this. this phenomenon that's always just lurking beneath the surface of, of maintaining an environment of, of free speech is on uh, free expression on campus is fundamentally difficult and uh, can't be taken for granted and is not the normal state. The normal state is you strive to have it but right below the surface there are all these forces. The particular forces can change over time Uh, But the the one one thing I would like to kind of toss on the table here that you alluded to is what I would say is a kind of um, privileging of feelings, which is... um, uh, Some of you may have seen the article, uh, I I don't remember which newspaper it was in, but there was a recent article in in which a group of high school students was saying, nobody should have to make an in-class presentation if it made them uncomfortable. And, um, and in fact, it got extended, and one student was quoted as saying, nobody should have to do anything that makes them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> 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 now, part of, the, part of the problem with this is, you know, okay, uh, you know, kids like adults say kind of uh, funny things sometimes, But but the trouble is there is an entire environment right now in a lot of high schools where this is just what I would say is an extension of the environment. It may be an extreme extension, but there's this enormous sense of everybody needs to be protected all the time, uh, particularly from language. And while I totally admit that uh, I, I'm not a high school educator, I don't pretend to be, but I have started talking to high school leaders about the question, are you preparing students to be in a university, an environment of open discourse and intellectual challenge, uh, or are you? And um, I think some places are paying a lot of attention to it, but in general, I think, uh, a lot more can be done because of the, the nature of the emphasis in, um, in high school right now.
1: President Thomas, how do you teach this on campus? If students are coming in uh, expecting to be protected from emotional upset, um, how do you teach them to listen to ideas with which they disagree?
3: I think it's a few things. Um, one, what I have always tried to do and, and, and tried to teach in the development of uh, instructors, which I've had a, a lot of experience with when I was department chair, uh, is bringing balance, if you will, to the discussion rather than leading with my uh, political or social uh, views. Um, also, you know, I think, and, and, and uh, Dr. Zimmer's point made me think about what happens even in high school, uh, this question of comfort, but there's also the question of what's the responsibility of educators to understand what we actually might be doing to individuals when we put them in those uncomfortable moments. And I'll give you an example. Um, When my daughter was in the seventh grade, she went to a private school, few African Americans, and the teacher was trying to teach about um, slavery. And in the past, she had randomly put kids in groups to be, you know, to kind of take the role of being a slave, a slave owner, right? And in the random assignment, my daughter wound up being in the group where she was supposed to imagine what it was like being a slave. And it was traumatizing. And so part of what I think, where I think the breakdown is in our ability to help young people have discourse is that we're not competently trained as educators to manage those discussions and to also see their connection to the identities of our students. And so we avoid them. Uh, And if we really want to go at this, we have to think about how we educate and equip our teachers in the classroom, our professors to understand what the fault lines are as we engage it, otherwise we just shy away from it. Right? and we bail on it or we treat the conversation as though it's just a clinical conversation and doesn't have emotion attached to it and um, I think we're largely ill-equipped as educators in this country uh, to be the guides for our young people and that's why we get what we get
1: all right, let's use our uh, short remaining time for closing statements. You've each, all three of you, have done so much to cast light and illumination on the free discourse of ideas in this country. Just brief concluding words to the audience about why they should care about free expression on campus and how they can defend it. Uh, President Sullivan. Well,
4: fundamentally, universities won't exist if there's not the right to debate and talk about competing views. Um, you know, in, in science, for example, the only way progress is made is by scientists um, uh, plainly using the scientific method, but also taking the time to challenge what is accepted wisdom and try a new thing. Um, at Virginia, one of those things was discovering that there was a bacterium that causes stomach ulcers. Nobody believed that was true. The doctor who came up with this hypothesis was uh, ridiculed and jeered at, and today he has a Nobel Prize. Um, that was a that was a great example, but it doesn't just happen in science. We also have to be certain that it's happening in philosophy and linguistics, um, in the in the classes in English, that our students get exposed to it on every side. and And ultimately, I think that they will find that they feel safer because they are equipped to deal with opposing arguments. That's where the real safety comes from.
3: I think this issue of First Amendment, free expression, free speech is important because the reality is that institutions like ours are creating the students who will ultimately provide leadership in the nation and um, if we don't create environments for free expression and debate and exploration of ideas, we create a group of individuals who will be ill-equipped to lead uh, in the world that they are going to inherit. And I think some of what may be the polarization that now exists in the country is that we have created a group of elites who didn't have the ability to be open to other sides and other realities. Uh, and what we've watched uh, over the last two years is a rebellion against that. And it's a, rebe- you know, it's, it's a rebellion happening on the left and the right. I think it's part of the reemergence of the exploration and interest in socialism on the left. Uh, And it's the hardening that I think we see that some people associate with Trump uh, on the right. But I think it's deeper than that.
1: President Zimmer, last word to you. Yeah, I'll I'll
2: be brief. And I just want to amplify uh, these statements, both of which I agree with. And I'd just like to uh, point out, when you listen to arguments these days, you think about issues that need to be confronted. the lack of people's ability to listen, to, to understand cultural context, to actually understand that there is history that happened and is actually having an impact on us right now. It hasn't gone away. And uh, there, there's a whole complexity of things that need to be understood in order to be dealing with the problems that um, that we're confronting as a society and that individuals will confront in their own personal and professional lives. And the in, entire closing off of, of speech that some people are actually straightforward advocates for, I mean, this is not just, uh, well, I don't like it so much. There, there are advocates for closing off of speech and they're all over some college campuses. Uh, fundamentally does long-standing harm to individuals' capacities and in terms of what it is they're going to be able to do for the rest of their lives. And that in turn translates into a uh, type of uh, societal blindness to being able to deal with complex issues in a
1: sophisticated way. For all they have done to defend free expression on campus and in America, please join me in thanking our panelists.
5: For our next segment, we welcome moderator Robert Rosenthal, former editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, former managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, and former executive director of the Center for Investigative Reporting, where he currently serves as a member of the board. Our panelists for this session include Amanda Bennett, Suki Kim, Elizaveta Amanda Bennett is director of Voice of America, the largest United States international radio broadcast source, providing news and information in more than 40 languages to a weekly audience of more than 200 million. Ms. Bennett is former editor of Bloomberg News and the Philadelphia Inquirer, reported for the Wall Street Journal for more than 20 years, and has been a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. Suki Kim wrote the New York Times bestseller, Without You There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons (coughs) of North Korea's Elite. And her essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, and the New York Review of Books. She is 2019. New America National Fellow. She is a contributing editor to The New Republic Magazine, and her feature on What's Really Behind Trump and Kim Jong-un runs today. Elisaveta Osetinkaya is a fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, School of Journalism. She founded and runs the Russian English language media startup, The Bell, and the YouTube video blog, Russians are okay.
6: So uh, I want to start off by again thanking uh, Duquesne University and and the Pittsburgh Foundation for making these two days really uh, remarkable uh, conversations. Uh, With this panel, we've heard a lot of things at a very high level and very important levels in terms of the law, the internet, technology, how editors of major news organizations think. We're going to bring it down to a level of of what journalists actually face on the ground. So, uh, one of the words we haven't heard in two days here is empathy. And I'm not trying to uh, generate empathy for what journalists do because we all know what we're getting into. But the best reporting of journalists also leads to empathy and understanding for people all around the world. And uh, for me, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist. I actually was an uh, editorial assistant on the Pentagon Papers when I was 22 years old and part of that team, which we've heard about. I've also been a prisoner in a dungeon in Uganda because I was a journalist. And I've sent people uh, into combat in really difficult situations. Uh, But I I take this personally, some of the things we're hearing in today's world. And I'm hoping today that each one of these uh, terrific journalists and writers, uh, talk a little bit about, first, about who they are and what they've done. And then we're going to have a conversation. So Amanda, uh, why don't you start and tell us about the Voice of America, where you're currently working
7: and yeah, leading. Ma- yes, thank you. And uh, I'd just like to point out three of the journalists that were killed in Kabul were uh, our colleagues from the Radio Free Europe. And they were killed all at the same time during the, uh, the bombing there. And Voice of America, earlier this year, also lost a Somali cameraman in a bombing in Mogadishu this year. So these issues that uh, Jamal Khashoggi raises are not theoretical ones for us, they're very real. And the outcome of how much governments push back on this kind of behavior really does have very practical implications for the news, the news gathering force that we have. Um, before you can understand I think what I'm talking about, I'd like to just give you a brief overview of what the voice of America is, because I find that even among my journalistic colleagues, there's a, there's a misunderstanding about who we are and what we do. And the first is that, yes, we still do exist. Um, um, we are, we're basically the US's BBC. We're structured very similarly. We have a very similar news force. We have an audience of 240 million. It's not just radio anymore. We have te- television, uh, all forms of digital. We broadcast basically in any form that people in the country use widely. And if you want to know what countries we broadcast into, take the, um, the Freedom House's list of unfree countries, basically count 60 countries up from the bottom, and that's our, our audience. So we are broadcasting into countries that have either very little or no free press at all. Um, We are 100% funded by the US government, uh, which leads my former journalistic colleague friends to say, oh geez, after such a long and distinguished journalism career, how do you feel about doing propaganda? And and my answer is, I wouldn't know. Because uh, even though we are 100% funded by the US government, this is extremely critical. It's extremely critical right now. We are legally protected by a set of of laws and regulations from interference by the US government. Those are not trivial laws, and they are in fact widely honored throughout the press, throughout the Congress, and throughout the administration. I took my job under the Obama administration. I continued to serve a year and a half into the Trump administration. This is not unusual. We cross administrations. So these protections are really quite real. And by the way, when we were talking about Trust Guard, I very quickly looked up and made sure we have a 100% green rating from Trust Guard, unlike our RT colleagues who have a red rating. So um, we are recognized as neutral and objective by uh, organizations that check those things. Um, we've been led, almost not entirely, but almost by journalists. I, I was a colleague of David Tribman back in the day. Um, Rosie and I were, and Max King were editors of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and some of our other uh, reporters were people. Our other directors were leaders of the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, and um, and other news organizations. So it's been held. It's been led by journalists, and so. You you need to understand also that we are fed not entirely but almost entirely by citizens and in many cases, most cases, residents of the countries we cover. Their jobs are dangerous, they do it because of a passion for free press, and I'd like to reiterate again that what happens with Jamal Khashoggi is not trivial for us. It really makes a difference for the safety and well-being of people who are reporting into their own countries. And could I just have one slide up? I'd like to show you something I think, I think and I hope will startle us, startle you. If you look at that, those numbers up on the, on the corner there, I don't know if you can see them, it's kind of an eye test. But look at the size of the markets that we have. That's, that's our market share on the, on the right is the percentage of the adults that we reach every week. And on the left is the trust. Those are trust numbers I don't think you'll see anywhere else um, that that you look. And the reason they trust us is they are living in environments, not where they're worried as we are now about the infiltration of falsehood, they're living in environments where they know they are receiving falsehoods, that no media around them can be trusted, and they turn to us for that information. So even though protection of our journalists is important, What is most important, most critical, this is really, really important, that the laws that separate us from the government, which we colloquially call the firewall, continue to be respected and protected. That is the single most important existential issue that faces us, because if those walls and protections are (coughs) breached, what goes away is not just free press in those countries, but the belief that a free press can exist. So I just want to say, please pay attention to the principles that people have been talking about here, because those principles are important.
6: Suki, you made a decision uh, to basically go undercover into North Korea uh, to tell a story. And uh, can you tell us about why you did that? And also, obviously, you knew there was tremendous risk if you had been discovered, and how you dealt with that.
8: Well, I. You know, here we are at the First Amendment Conference. Uh, North Korea is a place where uh, there is no freedom of any kind, um, freedom of speech to begin with. So what that means is that um, not only is it uh, there is no freedom of speech inside the country, but it also forbids any sort of writing about North Korea. So if you uh, try to cover it, and I've been covering North Korea for about 16 years, and you can't really get to the heart of the place, and that's the frustration with a topic like this, because um, all the things that we are now these days talk about in America, like fake news, death of the media, um, all of that is, is basically what North Korea has done very successfully. So if um, you're trying to cover it, you know what you all you're getting is a propaganda so I started entering North Korea from 2002 I'm also fluent in Korean I grew up in South Korea so I had the background to try to understand the country in more depth and um, very quickly it was obvious that just going in there for a few days on different kind of reasons will not give me anything that's even remotely close to what's really going on inside the country. And if you deliver that government-sanctioned uh, version of it, then you've just now served as a propaganda um, PR person for North Korean regime. So. What are the alternatives? I knew that I had to be immersed in there somehow, so I tried all different methods of trying to get in to live there, not just for a few days. It took me basically 10 years of, and five years of going into North, five different visits of going into North Korea, to find a way in, which is when I went in in 2011, posing as an evangelical school teacher, (coughs) ended up in this military compound living with 20-year-old young men, male only, 270 of them, North Koreans, in a locked compound for six months during the year uh, that Kim Jong-il died and Kim Jong-un rose to power. So that was, in the most recent history, the most important year of North Korea's history. So um, what we always also want to know about North Korea is, sure, there's a gulag and there's a nuclear weapons and all these things, but any coverage of North Korea generally lacks nuance because you can't get to the place and you can't interview people on the street because those are chosen for you. So then living there, being immersed in it, catching trying to catch subtleties and not through the method, traditional journalistic method of interviewing, but being just living in it, you start grasping what's under the surface. And I do believe actually not all topics are the same. I think the topics are very different. And in in a case like North Korea that's master at manipulating the media and also just lies after lies after lies, then it just takes a different kind of work. So that was an undercover work and um, that was the only way I could have covered the topic and also why it was so devastatingly important. You know, I will never forget the first time I went there in 2002, Um, I ended up writing a feature essay for the New York Review of Books, but I remember in those eight days' time, I wept just nonstop because I knew the violations that had happened here in a place that had nothing, that had also completely managed to isolate itself to this degree for 70 years, that means people have been killed for generations, and that truth had never come out, and there is no journalistic evidence. So then, how am I going to pursue this to get to the core of the place? And I think that ended up being really, I had no idea it's going to be such a long journey, but it was just a relentless pursuit of the truth of the place.
6: So Elizaveta just flew in from Moscow uh, this last night. Uh, about a 30-hour trip. So I hope she stays awake. She's <laughs> flying back tonight. Try. And but her story is fascinating because she was actually had to leave uh, this, uh, M- Moscow a few years ago because of work she had done as a journalist, and yet she's now had the courage, the ability to go back. So can you tell us about not only why you had to leave, but how you faced going back, knowing what you know?
9: Yeah, just in brief, uh, I have to explain who I am and how I landed here in the United States, not yesterday, but generally speaking. Uh, so I started in the mid of 90s as uh, oil and energy reporter uh, for the press, and uh, then uh, for my luck, I joined the newspaper Vedomesty, that was a subsidiary of Wall Street Journal and Financial Times by that time, and uh, Uh, I built my career in this newspaper and became editor of this newspaper and then I coherently ran Vedomosti, Forbes, Russia and um, a media called RBC uh, that uh, had TV channel, the largest business news portal in the country, uh, newspaper and the magazine. So I was editorial director of this uh, outlet and when i came there we started uh, changing editorial policy and made a lot of investigative reporting uh, that was uh, year 2014 that was a turning point in russia and uh, uh, for russia in international relationships especially with the united states and of course we like uh, blew against the wind And uh, the most culminating story we published and the the most exciting story we worked on was a story about Putin's dancing daughter. Uh, uh, For surprise of the most uh, people in US, uh, uh, the Russian president doesn't disclose uh, any information about his family, uh, especially about his children. So this is one of the top state secrets. Uh, and, of course, that was definitely crossing the, li- the lines, publication, and uh, revealing the business side of uh, his youngest daughter and telling her story about only But we, we published the only about uh, uh, business uh, and uh, we didn't touch her private life. She was, so she was involved in kind of creating Russian um, type uh, uh, Silicon Valley near Moscow State University in Moscow. Uh, and of course that was a big deal, uh, but uh, to your surprise I was not kicked uh, from this organization <laughs> after the publication and the year after that we published another story uh, related to Putin's family about his son-in-law and his business. And, um, well, of course, the bright publications um, in Russia are followed by bright departure uh, of certain journalists. So, uh, like, in about a few months after the second publication, we also published Panama Papers, and then uh, uh, the government put uh, tough pressure on the owner of the publication, and uh, he had to change the editorial team. And afterwards, I landed at Stanford first. I, I became a fellow at JSK Knight Fellowship, where I came to the idea that Russian people, um, global-minded, westernized Russian people, uh, need a thought partner because despite of all confrontation with the West, these people are still alive. And they need certain media to deliver their goals and values from. Uh, From another side, West also, uh, as I thought uh, that time, uh, needs certain uh, medium to communicate and to get fair and detailed information about the country. Uh, And that's how I came to the idea of the bell. Uh, Then I moved to Berkeley, so there is no mistake in bio, so uh, I moved from Stanford to Berkeley where I started with support of uh, some people and Lowell Bergman uh, from investigative reporting program. I started working on this uh, idea of the bell. And uh, uh, to now we have a website with uh, approximately one million uniques per month. Thirty thousand subscribers newsletter. I have my personal video blog that where I interview uh, Russian-speaking entrepreneurs who achieved global success, like Phil Libin or some.
6: But are those people in Russia, or they've had to leave?
9: They they, well, the thing is that nobody had to leave. Only some people had to leave. Well, people had their own destinies. I mean, some people left because their parents left. Some people decided to move to Silicon Valley because it's better fit their businesses and so on. So we also have uh, English language newsletter, weekly newsletter that I encourage you to subscribe uh, on our website. So mm, yes, and I'm doing quite, so we have team of 10 people on the ground in Moscow. Let
6: me interrupt, it. So so you, you had to leave because of a story you wrote. And obviously, Russian journalists have been murdered or killed because of their work. But you're confident in going back where you're still able to work there? And how do you face that threat when you know you're doing stories some people might not like? Uh, First, the devil is always
9: uh, in the details. So uh, the the general impression of Russia on the West is that Russia is very well-run, managed state with a very... I would say monolith idea and um, monolith thoughts of people, and uh, that's actually completely not true. Russia is, I would say, poorly managed state with a lot of people having in power, having their own interests, uh, own ideas, and sometimes values. And, and the only thing that unifies uh, unifies them now is confrontation with the West. That's true, but also. Uh, they have, in the government and the Kremlin, they have liberal wings, more conservative, heavily conservative wings, and uh, a surprising thing but, uh, that I'm not only able to travel uh, free, free, uh, freely into the country, but I also can do, for example, public talks with people former government people or people in the government, but being in complete confrontation with some other people who, like, whose goal is just to turn our media off or put us on the list of foreign agents together with Voice of America, and so on and so forth. So Russian society is not homogenous, and um, a power is very complicated agent that uh, uh, is better to uh, study.
6: <laughs> OK. Uh, Amanda, with, with the, the journalists you, who work for you, I mean, there's no, uh, there's no First Amendment protection. You know. And the, the Solicitor General in the earlier panel mentioned the fact that one of the things that when the, our founding fathers wrote the First Amendment, people could be hung and executed. Well, in the countries your journalists are working, in, they are arrested and beaten and sometimes executed. How do you worry or do you worry about protecting them, and can you?
7: I worry about all the time, and we can't protect them. And, for, and this is one of the things I find so touching, so moving, is the people that come to work for us, do this work, face down these dangers, because they see the value of free neutral, independent information. I say that the Voice of America is exporting the First Amendment because every story that we do, every time we do something, we show that it can be done. And these these journalists are very, very brave. And you know the the, the things that they face are not only being arrested, detained, roughed up. I mean I just have I have a list here of the things that have just happened so far this year. But the cross the cross-national threats that they're facing now raises the danger quite significantly. I'll just give you one example. This is our Radio Free Asia colleagues. There's um, family members of six of the journalists who are located in Washington have been rounded up and sent to those Uyghur re-education camps. The family members back in China have been arrested and taken into, into basically concentration camps because of the work of the journalist here. So the threats that these people are facing are really immense.
6: So uh, Governor Ridge, in, the, in another earlier panel, and said that the uh, undermining trust is the ultimate thro- threat to a democracy, and he was referencing the press and also obliquely uh, talking about the, the enemy that the people comments of President Trump or even last week that it was okay to body slam a journalist. When, how do you, being funded by the U.S. government, deal with that when your own journalists are around the world? How, is there, do you message that internally? How do you deal with that?
7: You know, it's really one of the, again, touching and inspiring things because we are, we are broadcasting. Th- these things that we are experiencing are coming to us against a context of our entire lifetimes, understanding the freedoms that we have and and benefiting from the freedoms that we have. When I go and and go out and see in the other countries, these are countries that have either had these kinds of freedoms only briefly or or very uh, limited basis or have never had these freedoms. And so for them, the reason there's those trust factors out there is they they actually understand what it means to have uh, impartial information given to them, and they see it coming from us. So for, for when we go out there, what they're saying is, please don't leave us. Please don't stop. Don't, don't, let this, let, don't let this go away, which is why I say that the most important thing that we have is that separation from government that, per, per, that permits us to report freely, openly on our own government, as well as any other governments, that concept, that foundation of independence is what we have to offer the rest of the world.
6: Thank you. Suki, uh, in your book, can you describe for the audience uh, what the news is like in North Korea that ex- the people are exposed to?
8: What is the news about? Well, I mean, I think being at this conference, it's been really fascinating to hear these words that come up like democracy or truth or um, North Korea is a case where that's all been eradicated. So, uh, you know, when I think in the uh, the first panel today, uh, I think it was the editor, executive editor of New York Times talking about that there are more options for the media. Um, They there's more than two papers. I mean North Korea. There's only really one paper Um, They say more than one exists, but really only one working paper and that is six pages long And every article is about the great leader Um, television is exactly the same, really only one functioning television channel, and that only shows programs about the great leader. What that also means, it brings back to again what we've been discussing, is the educated audience? Is it possible to have an audience who've been educated on nothing but the great leader there is really, you can't really pretend the rest of the world doesn't exist and educate them on anything. History, literature, <laughs> science, none of it is possible. So then you have an audience who literally has not had any information. It's not an informed audience you have in North Korea. Also, the concept of truth and lies, um, because the North Korean regime has successfully really told their people for generations that everything outside is a lie. So here, when we talk about fake news and taking away the credibility from the media, what North Korean government has done is to erase the media within their country, only have the concept of the great leader, and then um, took the credibility of the outside media away. So everything they're saying is not true, and here, we only have information about the great leader. So I think the fear of what we're talking about uh, you know, get somehow losing this First Amendment, North Korea is what happens. You know, like it is possible to erase history. It is possible. And Korea is a 5,000-year-old history. In 70 years history of North Korea, it has successfully erased 5,000 years. And the concept of truth and lies, and the ability in its citizens to differentiate between the two. And I think what's really been alarming to me um, in this country, it is true America has so much, but at the same time, I have to say in the current time, a lot of things remind me of North Korea a lot. This Twitter, President's Twitter that's happening constantly, Those really remind me of those slogans in North Korea. Every building has a slogan by the great leader. Every wall has a slogan by the great leader. It would be something that he's saying in a very short sentence, just like what Twitter is, what, 140 characters, 280 characters? It's exactly like that, all about the greatness of the great leader, and it's not that different. And I think that, I mean, it's fascinating because more and more there is a sadly, some resemblance.
6: One of the things, uh, I'd go a little layer deeper. Your interaction even with the students and the sort of the culture of lying that begins from the top and then in in people's interactions with each other, the almost inability to deal with truth.
8: When actually, I mean, what's the most heartbreaking in an immersive journalism where I was really (coughs) immersed and embedded within this group of Future leadership of North Korea—they were 20-year-old young men who's going to lead this nation. I mean, the inability to tell the truth from lies comes from lying is a way of survival. You have to lie to survive, but sometimes they also got in a habit of constantly saying lies, and also that's all they've ever known since birth. And sometimes they just couldn't tell the difference, and that. I think I think that's basically erasing humanity. If you cannot tell the difference what is true and what is not true, then it shakes your foundation. And I think that's what we've been talking about here a lot, listening to the panels, taking the credibility away from actually objective truth. I mean, that's all we're talking about, similar stuff, where your ground shakes. And then what is behind, what is left behind? I mean, it's basically it's it's possible. You know, we think that it's not possible to lose everything, but North Korea is an example where all of that got lost, which is humanity and history and memory and truth. And I, I don't know what more is what's more scary than a place like that.
6: Elizabeth, what are there red lines or lines you can't cross as a journalist? And in a, in a, in a- you know, the perception from here is, is that, you know, we've talked a little bit that everything emanates down from Putin, and what you're saying, it's a much broader control system. But as a journalist there, and I don't know if you've known some of your colleagues who have been killed or aware of that, certainly, but as a, as a fraternity, sorority of journalists, do you, do you sort of watch each other? Are there red lines you say you can't cross or the stories you won't go near? How do you manage that risk?
9: First of all, I have to say that fortunately, Russia is not like North Korea yet. So, um, <laughs> yet, uh-huh. uh, we don't know the, uh, how high is the speed of changes, uh, but still, Russia has free YouTube that is equally uh, used by both opposition, free press, and Kremlin as well. So Kremlin became uh, extremely efficient I mean, I refer to your point about what's true and what is not true. So Kremlin uh, uh, uses the, the various channels in the country uh, in a very efficient way to deliver its own agenda. And uh, basically, the truth about uh, Russian media landscape is that you can find any information you'd like and believe in, in everything you want to believe. So, uh, uh, talking about uh, lines, uh, just today, Novaya, the very, very important uh, uh, institutionalized newspaper called Novaya Gazeta, reported amazing piece about Evgeny Prigozhin and affiliated parties. That I hope will be translated. Well, what does by that mean?
6: What, tell us more detail with that. Uh, yeah. That uh, well,
9: Evgeny Prigozhin forward. is a guy who is an indicted in the United States uh, for trolling trolls factories. So he's a father. He's Putin's Putin's chef, and he's the father of trolls factories, in uh, that uh, uh, interfered uh, U.S. elections. So the story is about some. Uh, cases of violence uh, that uh, his people affiliated with him were involved it 's a very, very long piece. Unfortunately, I only was able to read it like this uh, very quickly, but it gives like a perspective of what kind of people we deal on, on that side, uh, for example. Uh, so this is definitely a red line reporting about Putin's family. Uh, That's certainly um, for established media, that bell is not. Uh, But uh, what I call, uh, what what Russia calls, in Russia is called um, established media is media who belonged to uh, local people, local business, or to themselves, or to, so who should uh, operate within the country with cautiousness. So that's kind of a silent, Rule not to report uh, aggressively about uh, the the Putin's family, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I have to say that there are a lot of thing, other things that journalists report. For example, uh, we all know the case of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who every day reveals new and different facts about Putin's inner circle, like. Mr. Zolotov, who is chief of National Guard, or like some other officials who stole some money or uh, purchased some property. So, I think so what you're saying is yeah. it's,
6: it's a much more open press than we think that about you,
9: here. Yeah. It's also uh, vastly used by Kremlin himself, but not uh, always it, it, it gives certain results. For example, you say that Kremlin, uh, some media, I would say, uh, say, like, that Kremlin almost orchestrated uh, elections in the United States while Kremlin completely failed its own domestic elections on the Far East. Uh, when uh, a governor from a ruling party totally failed and totally lost elections to another, uh, not opposition, but, like, regulated opposition candidate. But those things are, are possible, and it's another proof that Russian uh, Politics is not homogenous, and it's not uh, well-orchestrated and well-managed from the top to the bottom. It's very different. Okay.
6: Okay. Well, I want to thank you all, and thank you all for coming today and listening to us.
0: This conversation was presented by Duquesne University and the Pittsburgh Foundation in partnership with the National Constitution Center. This episode was edited by Jackie McDermott and Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Taneya Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. We hope you enjoyed our 1A USA series. Tune back in tomorrow to hear a bonus episode featuring a performance by Simon Tam and his band, The Slants, who fought all the way to the Supreme Court to trademark their band name. Here's a sneak peek of tomorrow's episode. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Taneya Tauber.
3: fall, crashing your way through my
8: walls, I'll just watch you fly, fails cannot hide what you
2: are to me, we're one in the
0: same, all of these feelings can I be dreaming? endlessly falling when